Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Hit Chat Chit Chat. I'm your host, Connor Reynolds, and beside me, we have the lovely JP Fashone. JP, how are you doing today, sir? You're good. Good, good. Got some golf in today, so body's feeling a little sore, but <laughs> we're doing all right. Dude, I actually swung the bat for one of the first times with actual intent yesterday. Brooks Benson came out, hey. and uh, me and Brooksy are actually going to start a little series about us getting back in the cage um, we're kind of flowing back some uh, ideas or anything. Right now we're thinking about calling it the has-been bros um, <laughs> and go from there. But we're not too sure. But I'm not going to lie, dude. My wrist is destroyed. I went through and I was swinging like the 37, uh, 37 axe with plyos and stuff like yeah. that. My right wrist is destroyed right now. He's not as uh, young as he used to be. No, so I can't even imagine. When was the last time you uh, went golfing or did anything like that? I golf pretty regularly. Really? So, hey. It's, it's, you, know, you know, when the Seattle, when the sun's out, you got to get outside because it only happens about three months out of the year. So we got to get out when we can. <laughs> well, shoot, dude. Uh, whenever you come back to good old Colorado, we'll, uh, we'll have to get jump on the course together. Absolutely. I, I got some Absolutely. New Balance uh, golf shoes that I made from. Uh, they were the uh, Memorial Day cleats from a couple years ago, the turfs. And then I oh, yeah. used one of those like self golf kits and put in golf uh, little clicks on it. So it'll be fun. It'll be a good time. Sweet. So, what do we got today? Today, we are going to go through, we are going to talk a little bit about Bat Path. Going to talk a little bit about the Yodon Alvarez uh, walk-off home run that's floating around uh, Twitter and Instagram right now. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about what it means to uh, transcribe the data that we capture as uh, instructors and how to kind of filter that uh, for the athlete. Kind of kind of uh, a little full day right there. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be packed. Uh, solid lead-off one, two right there, three. Yeah, so... Uh, getting into the bat path, uh, I had an interesting phone call. Uh, one of my buddies played, played baseball in high school, uh, calls me in the middle of the night, well, 12 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> right in the middle of the night. I wake up and, and the question he has, he's, he's, uh, has enjoyed the night, let's say, uh, maybe not in a, in a, in a sober mindset, uh, but he's arguing with one of his friends, uh, about the, pros and cons of an in-to-out bat path versus an out-to-in bat path. Uh, and I thought it would be interesting to kind of talk about, do we want an in-to-out bat path? Do we want an out-to-in bat path? What does that mean? Uh, what are the benefits and advantages of both? So like as, as a coach, you know, in the cage with guys, like what, when that comes up, what kind of things are you talking about? Uh, what kind of your opinion there? So, for me personally, uh, going over, and I haven't necessarily looked at the uh, video that you're going to be pulling up yet. I kind of want to get a first initial reaction uh, from myself and then also the viewers. Um, me personally, just going through and uh, just hearing those words, I feel like a uh, an out or uh, an inside to outside swing, I feel like is going to be um, the more dominant or premier. Uh, movement pattern for a hitter. Um, I feel like with that, you're going to be able to work to all fields uh, where an out to in, you're going to kind of almost be limited a little bit. Um, I know there's been talk about uh, John uh, Steparamos. Is that how you pronounce his last name? 
Ah, uh, I know he put out something where it was a player A versus player B, um, very similar exit velos. I can't remember what the other metric was, um, but then if I recall, uh, either the distance or the power numbers uh, for one of the hitters was very skewed. Um, and the only difference was one athlete was trying to work uh, all fields and the other athlete was primarily just going more pull side. Uh, and the pull side hitter is the one that had the better numbers. And so I'm not too sure uh, with that coming into play, if that's something that was a machine set up solely for inside pitches or if that player's approach or uh, swing design is aimed towards being more pull side. So I don't know if that then that player has an out to in and just work on catching it uh, at the right spot or if they're just super early with an in to out swing. Um, I'm not too sure. But me personally, I think right away when I first hear those uh, and inside to outside is going to be uh, more ideal. Yeah, I think that's probably most coaches intuition and, and everything you said, I would agree with. Um, I think the idea of an in to out bat path or path um, is an interesting one because whether it's out to in or into out um, is dependent on when time you're looking at right swing's gonna move in an arc kind of around the body um so you see this good yes sir so uh we got a guy here this overhead view where he's gonna have as his bat's coming into the zone it's gonna be more into out right uh which is gonna be pretty typical for most hitters just because the bat's starting here it's not really starting out away from him um and if we kind of cut this path off at the front of the plate it's buried into out uh, but the, my, my friend's point or in his argument against an into out path was the fact that an into out path wouldn't allow you to now pull the ball. Uh, and my, my point of contention with him was if we look at this bat path and we kind of take it through, uh, the swing and we get to a point where it's just a little bit further out in front of the plate, as that bat goes to kind of make turn this corner around him and he makes contact a little bit further out in front. Now this ball is going to get pulled. So having an in-to-out bat path or an out-to-in bat path isn't necessarily going to limit uh, where you can hit the ball. It just might limit what point of contact you could hit the ball certain places. Uh, so for a guy like, like this, he's going to have to catch the ball pretty far out front for him to be able to pull it because it's kind of moving away from uh, his body for a longer portion of time. Now, I work with this hitter, so I kind of know uh, – how his body moves a little bit. He likes to pull his hands kind of out in front of his torso. And so that's where he gets a little bit too much into out. But I think the idea of like an into out versus out to in is kind of like the same argument of hitting rotational or linear. Uh, well, yeah, it's kind of both. Um, and it's not really about whether one's better than the other. It's more about what time do you get to those positions? Uh, and does it give you the opportunity to kind of make good contact in a lot of different areas? I thought it was an interesting topic from a guy that hadn't played baseball since high school and, and talked to him about point of contact and attack angle and kind of the, the fan angle of the bat, like which, which direction the bat's facing um, for, a, for a novice is was kind of mind-blowing. Um, and I think a lot of coaches breaking it down a little too simplistically where it's just in to out versus out to in, um, when in reality the, the swing's just very complicated and kind of goes through all these movements very dynamically. Uh, throughout the swing. Damn. So 
Is your answer then yes? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is better? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I think my answer to that question would be, uh, yeah, it just depends on when you, you start working out to in versus into out. Uh, for, for example, this guy, I would say is probably a little too into out a little too long to see his bat work around a little bit further. So he's not getting kind of jammed up back here. What he typically does because he's trying to pull the ball a lot. He gets it too far out and ends up snap hooking balls. Uh, so is that so something that isn't working to serve? Is that something where that would almost cap or limit this athlete's ability to see velo at a higher level? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because now, if probably get away with catching it deep, but the issue is when he starts getting it too far out in front, like his window for uh, good attack angles and to kind of make good contact. So over here, we have his attack angle. Uh, oh, went too far. Over here, we, oh, no, I went way too far. <laughs> over here, we got his attack angle. Uh, so red would be like negative attack angles. And then as he works out, it gets a little too positive. So this green is kind of that 4 to 16 range that we're looking for. And you can see where he gets to that point is kind of right around the front of the plate, which is right around the time his bat starts working around. So for him to have a good attack angle, yeah, he's kind of cutting off this part of his swing. And so now for him to hit the ball to center, he's got this much room. If he gets too far out in front now, he's just hooking it foul. So his window to make good contact is just way too small. And then will that also then bring into to where um, timing of off speeds is going to um, drastically change or require adaptation throughout that swing? Yeah. Definitely, definitely going to have to kind of compensate somehow to try and hold the barrel in the zone a little bit longer um, so he doesn't kind of turn this corner as quickly, tries to hold it out a little bit longer, bat speed goes down, it's really hard to make contact or make adjustments at the last minute like that, for sure. So when that bat speed goes down and we're in a almost adaptation phase of the swing due to uh, a variance of what we were anticipating or expecting for that pitch, is that then going to change or alter um, the players? You, you said that the bat speed is going to drop. Um, on average, how much do you see an athlete's bat speed drop from um, a lower pitch pressure situation, maybe like a T or front toss? Um, how much mm -hmm. does their bat speed on average or generally uh, drop when they start seeing something with a little bit higher pitch pressure, uh, whether it's a machine or a live arm? Yeah, uh, generally 10 to 20%, um, which sounds like a lot. Well, I take that back. What I want to see is is it drop a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, right? Right around 10% uh, bat speed loss is, is okay. Most guys kind of swing uh, in game. Uh, they'll swing about 90% of their peak bat speed. Uh, it's pretty typical. Uh, we start getting a little bit more than that. Then you're kind of getting into, like you said, like, hey, this guy struggles with velocity. I struggles when he's off time. Uh, we're losing a ton of bat speed because of that. And so if on general, a player is going to drop, like you said, about 10% of bat speed, and that's just changing the environment, right? That's just changing the pitch pressure, not even including the adaptation of off speed or anything like that. And so if we're already 
10% below our average. And now we're also going to add in the fact that we're going to have to change our uh, movement pattern for different pitches. And like you said, that will then increase the uh, droppage percentage of that bat speed. So now we're working even more than 10%. That's going to then make it to where um, their miss hits are not going to be as pure or uh, give as much of a chance as possible as if they were able to maintain that 10% drop off. Now that we're looking at more, probably, I don't know, um, I'll allow you to kind of give a better percentage, but I'm thinking probably like, what do you think? 15 to 20% less when they're having to change that? Yeah, at least. Yeah, probably creeping closer to 30 at, at different points, uh, which is why like increasing your peak bat speed is really important. If you get fooled on a pitch and we're swinging at 30% what our peak is, uh, if your peak's really low to begin with, now we're in trouble, um, which is why bat speed just kind of helps when uh, having a high peak bat speed helps when you're off time, when you don't get your A swing off because you don't need all of your bat speed uh, to still be successful. So when you're looking at that, when do you think you would prefer that green line to start, that little perfect attack angle? When are you yeah. – you, you mentioned it starts around four inches or right about even with the plate to about 14 inches. Is that an ideal kind of spot where we're looking for that attack angle to be optimized or are we looking for it a little bit different uh, in an ideal situation? Yeah, I think ideally we kind of get to zero or that's starting to flatten out and starting to come up uh, right around four to six inches behind the front of the plate. Okay. Uh, somewhere in there but the key is not getting it too high when you start to get out in front of the plate a lot of guys will have like a u-shaped backpack and mm -hmm. they might hit that low point in their attack angle right around the right range but now they they do something with their torso they lean back or whatever the bats bat attack angle goes up super high so now they can't catch pitches out front which is where we talk about like a little bit flatter bat path instead of having it really steep in and steep out now, when you're looking at a swing like this, and then you're looking at, we had mentioned earlier, a, a Yaldon Alvarez swing that happened to be a walk-off. Um, when looking at that swing, and I don't know. So when you're looking at the swing that we mentioned earlier, the Yaldon Alvarez swing, which we have pulled up right here from October 11th. This is the walk-off home run. Um, when you're looking at this, that just seems to be an absolutely crazy number. But then it goes into yeah. and shows the attack and how similar to what you were talking about, about how and if you're able to on this come around, pause it when it kind of puts that side angle right there. Mm. Money. If we're looking at it, I'm seeing that bat path start to flatten out almost even with that point of the back of the plate. And then it looks like yeah. it gets to a point of how we were mentioning that like optimal spot. Looks like he caught it perfect. Kind of right in the right in the perfect range. Like you said, he's kind of starting to flatten out uh kind of right back here. I would say zero point is probably somewhere in here based on the, the pitch angle. Uh, so it's probably like right around, like I said, like four inches uh, behind the front of the plate. 
and then starts getting positive. And like you say, he caught it, caught it damn near perfect <laughs> as far as attack angle goes. That's awesome. And if we go to where it shows the uh, bat speed here in a little bit, this is the holy smokes, 94.1 mile an hour number. bat speed. That That's is. A big that is a very large number. And the thing that I want to point out, and I, I put out a tweet on this, is that pitch speed is 85.4. I thought the pitchers were supposed to supply the power. That's what I've been told my whole life. <laughs> That's what we've been told. Yeah, not so much. Not so much. And the interesting part, what I liked uh, that they did here, uh, I'll play it back again. You can see the, the pitch speed number go down, right, 86 uh, and, and that pitch speed kind of getting lower into contact uh, because when we talk about smash factor and, and kind of how exit velocity is generated, the pitch velocity is always based on the, how fast the ball is moving in contact. It's going to constantly be slowing down as we get there. So I really liked how they did that and kind of showed the ball slowing down. Do you, when do you think if they had the radar gun up, what velo do you think the radar gun would show for that pitch then? Would that show 85, or would that pitch then have it when the, what the speed of the pitch is at release? Uh, normally, it's at release nowadays. Ah. Um, so you can look up what the, the actual pitch speed was, but uh, I would imagine it's it's probably right around 90, uh, 95, uh, somewhere in there. Oh, wow. Uh, just based on our – based on – watching the hit tracks uh, as it kind of gives you the pitch speed as it's crossing the plate. It's right around 10% of speed lost uh, over 55 feet. So it's got to be right around, uh, around 90, 93, 95. Wow. That's, uh, in my opinion, of a swing, that's as, uh, that's pretty optimal right there for that pitch. Uh, that, yeah. That's pretty money. Yeah, and very, very good like illustration of exactly what we talked about compared to the last bat path we looked at. Versus this is like into out, into out, and they start making the turn kind of right around here, and now the bat starts working back towards the pitcher, catches this one a little bit from front, bats a little bit more angled, and he pulls that ball. So when we're looking at this, the bat speed again, 94.1 at contact. Is that something that is even possible? Um, I think it's possible. Um, I think... We just don't see it very often uh, for two reasons. A, we don't get to work with athletes like <laughs> Alvarez very often. <laughs> um, and, and two, blast, uh, blast normally caps their, their bat speed peak that it'll register uh, at 90. Um, so normally we'll have maybe a little bit higher bat speed um, with some guys, especially swinging the underload bat. They'll kind of move a little bit faster. Um, but that, that blast number will kind of cap out uh, right around 90. Um, so I think it's probably possible for a bat speed of 94, but I don't think that's a uh, realistic number for this swing. Um, you know, and, and let me let me kind of explain why. So he's, uh, he's going to look like a lot of numbers. Um, <laughs> but this is essentially the factor for uh, – pitches based on their bat speed and then the resulting exit velocity. Um, so we just use the same formula we have uh, for our smash factor. Um, and I changed the incoming pitch speed to 85.4 um, to kind of match up with uh, what we saw Alvarez hit. So if we kind of scroll over to 95, uh, I'm pretty sure that ball was hit. Um, 
116. 16? Are you looking at for angle or exit velo? I think it's 116. 116? Yeah. <laughs> it's just dummy. <laughs> yeah. So he would have a smash factor uh, about 50% contact efficiency uh, to hit a ball 116 with that bat speed. So for him to get like a perfect smash factor and he just squared it up with that bat speed, he would be hitting balls like 130 miles an hour, <laughs> which is why I say I think the bat speed number is probably slightly inflated. Uh, it could be due to like a number of reasons. Either they captured the the point on the bat a little bit closer to the end uh, instead of like the sweet spot of the bat, which is normally like six inches from the end. Um, and so obviously the end of the bat's going to be moving a little bit faster uh, or there's some some filtering issue, uh, which I am not smart enough to talk about. <laughs> Do you, and I might be putting you on the spot on this one, does blast motion then because of us seeing a cap and we don't see it get as high as that, does then blast motion use the uh, sweet spot bat speed or do they use the end of the bat for bat speed? Blast uses is six inches from the end of the bat, uh, which is pretty typical across most sensors. I think DK uses the end of the bat. Um, which which is why they were in the lower category. <laughs> which is, yeah. Um, so back to our yeah, past podcast. Pretty sure they use the end of the bat, but most most people when they talk about bat speed, they're talking about that that sweet spot bat speed. I love that man, and more like you mentioned earlier, <laughs> a lot of numbers on there, and I also noticed that almost that's color coordinated. It is a little color coordinated, so you know negative smash factor is obviously not good. If your bat speed's higher than your exit velocity, that's a problem. Um, but we kind of get down into some green ones and just kind of give you a reference, so. Uh, point two is uh, depending, you know, kind of changes based on the bat, uh, weight, length, type of wood, things like that. Uh, but point two is is pretty much peak smash factor. Um, so kind of anything above that uh, is going to be pretty much impossible. So what I like to do with athletes uh, with something like this is we'll take kind of this number. Let's say a guy wants to hit a ball 100 uh, at some point in his life, and kind of scroll over and go to like, okay got to kind of have 70 mile an hour bat speed uh, and make perfect contact to hit a ball 100 um, and if you want to kind of have some room for air let's say you kind of want to you know miss hit balls at 100 we got to be moving the bat you know 79 miles an hour we got to be moving it pretty fast um, golly it's a good point of reference i give some guys uh, kind of some targets to shoot for that is uh that's a lot that's a lot and so when looking at this, if I'm just a player, I don't necessarily go through every blog or go through and really understand all of this. As an athlete, how am I able to digest all this information? What's for you as an instructor, what is your role when looking at all of this? What could be to some people jargon? Um, how do you go through with an athlete, uh, and what's your role to allow them to digest this information? Yeah, I think the role is to make it very, hold on, 
There's going to be a lot of cutting. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> let me yeah, let me write down here. this time marker. <laughs> oh, let me close the yeah. stream one sec. Boom. There we go. All right. We're whole. Did I start that sentence off? Is a question. Oh, I think uh, three, two, one. The role of the trainer is to kind of digest a lot of the information for the athlete um, and then kind of work backwards from there. So uh, I'm not going to give the athlete all the information. We're just going to talk about the things that I think are most important. So whatever I want them to focus on during their training block, that's the stuff we're going to talk about. We're not really going to talk about uh, if we're really working on bat speed, that's all we're going to talk about. I'm not going to talk about how uh, his lack of bat speed is affecting all this other stuff. We're just going to talk about that. Um, and maybe some like mechanical changes that we're looking to make. I think the the biggest thing is to boil everything down uh, as much as you can and make it really easy to, to talk about. And you guys, what you guys do like talking to to athletes when you guys have hit tracks up and, and blasts and everything rolling, and guys start getting confused. Like, what's your go to method to kind of work through that with them? And I think a lot of that's also going to be obviously uh, athlete to athlete. Um, I have one athlete, and he's been on the podcast before, Braden uh, Thompson, who's one of my uh, interns and one of my college guys. Um, dude's gone through and is now certified with uh, driveline for hitting. So he's the type of guy that he wants to know every single little piece of data. He wants to know and understand everything. Even if it's maybe not a part of what we're working on for that day, he wants to know why. He wants to know how. And I have some other athletes that are, um, let's just say, maybe not all there when it comes to looking at numbers and data. Maybe have some lower grades um, and not because they're lazy. Um, they're not necessarily going to be going through and wanting, I guess, all of that. And so as an instructor, it's very important to be able to digest and make it to where you understand and know um, who you're talking to, who, who your audience is. Uh, and that's going to vary. And it's going to go through, there's going to be, and I like to view the instructor as an interpreter or a translator uh, for all of this information to the athlete. The athlete may not know much. Maybe they know exit velo and bat speed, or maybe they know a lot and they're able to go through and talk about um, uh, ideal point of contact with attack angle uh, and different stuff like that. And so, uh, as the instructor, um, you're going to have to interpret or be a translator of when you have all that blast motion data, when you have all that head tracks data. Um, one athlete, you're maybe going to need to just solely look at results and external cues. Another athlete, you might have to talk more about, hey, you know, our attack angle is getting too steep or too low or this or that. Uh, and they'll be able to digest and take that information differently. And it's going to change from athlete to athlete. But a lot of it is, I, I think the level of instructor shows with how you're able to work with different athletes. If you're a one-size-shoe kind of guy uh, or gal that's an instructor, um, you're going to work really well with those athletes that fit your shoe. But anybody outside of that size you're, it's going to be a struggle. It's just not going to fit. And so me personally, I think 
the more athletes or the wider range of athletes that you as an instructor are able to um, deliver or allow them to digest the information to where they're able to understand at the same level. Now, there might be different starting points for uh, the information that they know, but allowing them to take in what they need. Like I said, some athletes are going to need a lot of the little things and other athletes are going to need more uh, external cue type stuff because they don't necessarily either get or want that other information. And it's going to vary from athlete to athlete. And that's where the instructor, um, I think, really has to uh, uh, show what they're able to do. Yeah, definitely. It definitely requires a lot of feel. Uh, it's kind of one of those things where you kind of got to feel what the athlete can handle. I think ultimately, like, the goal for me is to get the athlete to the point where they can look at the data without me and pick out what's important, pick out what might be interesting, but they probably don't need to think about, um, pick out the stuff that the data might say one thing, but like, hey, I know, like, the sample size isn't great, or, hey, I know the environment doesn't really lend towards this data point being valuable. Um, or what have you. I'd like the athletes to get there. And I think that's my goal. But like you said, every athlete's going to be different. And what place we start at in that process of kind of education uh, is going to vary really drastically. Um, and it still surprises me sometimes where we'll be talking about like a tag angle. And like, that's the only thing we've been working on for the last six weeks. And we get done with the six weeks and he's looking at his blast it's like, whoa, what's a good attacking? I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> what? Um, and it's it's easy to it's easy to screw it up. I mean, I'm definitely at fault uh, for for getting into an athlete meeting room and going off for 30 minutes about how how their torso rotation on the motion capture is affecting their their angular velocity and the bats moving this way now, and so we got to do this. And you just look back after talking, and they just like. <laughs> what just came out of your mouth? Um, so I think it's an easy trap to fall into with all the information. But I think at the end of the day, like I like to remind myself when I get back into the cage after you know, kind of meeting with the athlete and going through everything, it's like, hey, like I know I talked a lot, I know I said a lot of things, but at the end of the day, like if you hit the ball that way, really hard, you're good. <laughs> like, everything else is going to be fine. You just hit the ball hard that way, and we're we're chilling. Um, <laughs> So, yeah. And like you said, like going back to external cues, going back to that feedback loop is huge. It's crazy. And this is one of my guys I use as an example. We train athletes in, in our environment, not in a vacuum, but a controlled vacuum where it's not that we're making it always super easy for them that we are able to control almost every variable. And so going through, if uh, when we're hitting, we're looking at how to optimize this athlete's um, movement patterns or timing or this or that. And so uh, we can go through and we can look at a ball that is just absolutely tattooed and gets uh, would be an out on hit tracks. If the swing was right, us as instructors with the time being, we're super excited about that because our goal is to create the best process to give the most optimal results. And generally, you know, good swing is going to allow that to happen. Just in that specific situation, it didn't work out. Whereas in the game, 
doesn't really matter um, how optimal the swing you have if you're not getting the results. So you can have the most horrible, horrendous swing of all time, but if you're able to optimize the results consistently, um, it's going to play. And the athlete that I, I bring up all the time for me is Hunter Pence. Um, in my opinion, Hunter Pence had one of the ugliest swings of all time. Um, if I recall right, I think he played eight years in the bigs, nine years in the bigs. Um, the dude was just a dog at the plate. And so it was able to work for him. Um, whereas if he took that swing, brought into, you know, driveline, brought into fast, there's going to be a lot of things that we can adjust, we can change, and we're going to want to fix. Um, and it's just one of those when you're looking at the environment, uh, the specific athlete, like you said, if we can get it to where you're hitting the ball hard in this direction, it'll work out, it'll play. Um, and I think that's a little bit of a difference and it's massive to talk about as the instructor. And we've gone into the relationship of the instructor, the athlete and the coach and how there's, uh, differences, but everybody needs each other and that, when you're going through with this athlete and talking about how to transcribe that information and that data, um, I think that is also very important to be able to note is that, all right, what is the purpose? Where are we at in the timeline of um, that this player's uh, playing season uh, and stuff like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's just like, it's probably a really good answer to the question of like, how does your training change as guys go into season? Like, like you said, or, job in the off season and, and like in that controlled vacuum is want to give you the we want to increase your odds of getting a hit in the game and and that could be like hey we're going to change attacking we're going to increase your bat speed we're going to change your bat path we're going to make it a little bit more in down or we're going to make it a little bit more out to in and like you said it's not really chasing results uh in the sense that yeah you might get out on hit tracks so like yeah it's you know but you hit it great uh and so who cares uh, versus you get you get out in the game and like you take a bad swing, but it's a single. Like who cares? Like it's a single. Um, and so the training focus kind of changes like that. And I think how we talk about data and, and digest the data for athletes should kind of follow that same line, uh, depending on the, the time of year for sure. Um, and and getting being able to connect everything back to how does your outcome now change? How how does your likelihood of being successful change? Uh, because that's that's really all it is. I mean, hitting's hard as it is. So like, you're gonna, you're gonna hit balls hard. You're going to take good swings. You're gonna do all of that and still get out. Um, and so the the challenge isn't getting you to be successful more often than not. The challenge is how do I make you successful when it's not perfect? How do I make you successful when it's not great? Uh, and that's where I think the data digestion really comes into as a coach because you have all this information. Okay, what do I want to talk about that I think is going to improve the odds of them being successful the most? And we're just going to hammer that point. Um, and it might connect to a bunch of different things that I picked up by going through all this data. But the athlete doesn't need to know that, right? If I can fix his attack angle, like his torso angle is going to change. If I can fix his bat speed, like his launch angle is going to change or whatever. Uh, but he doesn't need to know that. He just needs to know I need to focus on this one thing. Make it really, really valuable. I, I like that piece a lot. And I think that's where it comes into, again, talking about um, the quality of the trainer in the sense of how they're able to navigate their uh, client or their hitter. And so when you're going through, if, uh, like you said, if we're – 
if you see there's four things that are an issue and if you fix one of the issues, it might, like you say, fix the others. And so it's one of those where it's like as an athlete or as an instructor to the athlete, do you want to go up and say, all right, we have four things wrong with this wing, blank, 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 where you're going to do blah, blah, blah. Now the athlete's probably only going to be thinking of, wow, I have four things wrong with my swing. Gosh, what what's going on? They're, they might hit panic mode a little bit. But as the instructor, if you're able to look at that information and go, okay, these four things are the issue, but two of those things are being caused by an inefficiency with this first one. By fixing this first one, they'll fix the other two. So now if I can fix that, I only have two main issues now. Whereas maintaining and being able to be consistent with that first one, because that's probably going to come back a little bit, and then also that final fourth one. Um, and as the instructor, that is massive to be able to translate that to the athlete. And all, it's almost, in my opinion, kind of secretive, little, little secret power. Um, yeah. And I actually was going through, I had um, two athletes I was working with. One of the athletes is a little bit newer. Uh, it was their second session in. Um, and the other athlete had been here. Uh, I think this, is, this was their fourth or fifth. Um, and we're going through and we're doing a drill. We were doing little bat speed trainers. Um, we were using, I think it was the hook. We were doing hookums, And this athlete was going through just super early, um, getting a little disconnected, shoulder pulling. Um, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, all right. So this athlete is early. They're only being able to go pull side, um, nothing really to the opposite side. And if they do go opposite side, it's a little flare. Uh, all right. So do I talk and tell them, hey, you're yanking your shoulder? Eh, probably not, because I, I personally at that moment thought that that was a, uh, a reaction to something else rather than the cause of everything else. And so instead of saying like, hey, you know, I think we need to quit working on pole side and doing this and doing that, uh, mostly just said, hey, I want you to start your load a little later. And then uh, I looked at the other athlete that wasn't in, uh, that was the newer athlete. I go, do you believe in magic? And the athlete kind of looked at me. He's like, what? He's like, no. I was like, you don't believe in magic? And he's like, no. Like, okay. So then I go through. I, I throw this athlete one. Super late, fouls it off. Just went through an adjustment period. I'm like, all right, calibrate your swing. It's okay. I go do the exact same thing. Next one, gets caught, was, uh, was a little too early again. I'm like, all right, find me a happy medium between those two. I look over at the original athlete and I said, you sure you don't believe in magic? And he goes, what? Throw the next one ball. It was a smash factor freshman in high school, but smash factor of 98 miles an hour uh, or exit velo 98 miles an hour, straight up the middle. Perfect timing. And I looked over at the athlete uh, and I was like, I thought you didn't believe in magic. What, what do you, what would you call that right there? And almost was, as the instructor, it's like, I could see the path that we're going down because I've done it before. I can see this athlete, if we make this adjustment, this adjustment with this focus, it's going to fix blank, blank, blank. And it's obviously not going to happen on the first swing. It's not going to happen on the second swing. But if we're able to take that first swing where we were um, really late, second swing where we're really early, combine those two using more for this athlete external cues, all of a sudden, bada bing, bada boom, everything almost self-corrects. And uh, as an instructor, those are the times where it's like, 
yeah, I'm a badass. That, that's, in my opinion, the bat flip of an instructor where it's like, yeah, yeah I'm walking. I, I literally, he hit that. I threw the one ball that was left in my hand. And I walked out of the cage. I was like, yep. <laughs> I love the way you described that of like the calibration period because it's so true with like when guys get overwhelmed with how much data there is. We're like, we're working on point of contact and they're, and they're watching hit tracks. They're watching hit tracks. And their point of contact's like moving further off front. And then they come after the session and they're like, hey, my attack angle is super high. And it's like, and I tell them like, yeah, don't, don't worry about it. Like it's not, I'm not worried about it because I know the calibration period's going to happen where, hey, we're pushing your point of contact further out front. So your attack angle is going to be higher because as the point of contact goes further out, the attack angle is going to get higher. So you're, you're hitting balls at too high launch angles, which I'm fine with right now because what we're focusing on is changing your point of contact. I know and I trust that during that calibration period, you're going to kind of figure out, okay, I need to get that attack angle down a little bit and still catch it out in front. And you hit the ball a little bit lower and still catch out in front. Um, but when you overwhelm dudes with information, like just like, hey, like this is all the little ranges we need to be in. And like they start panicking about all that stuff. Then when you're making that adjustment, that calibration period becomes so much more difficult because they just never commit to one thing. The biggest um kind of story or uh thing that i bring up to an athlete when i first started working with them to allow them to kind of understand that calibration period is i use the uh, goldilocks and the three bears all the time mm. all the time mm -hmm. and uh, i i talk about the porridge and i'm like example um if you have an athlete like you were saying that uh is just let's say to catching the ball out uh, two out in front. They're just way too early, way too early. Okay. So I would tell an athlete, you are calibrating your timing off of what your timing is currently. And so you might catch a ball a little further back in your swing, and you're going to feel like you're super late, but that's actually the point of contact we're trying to work towards. No matter what, it's going to feel like you're late. You're going to feel awkward. You're going to feel uncomfortable. And so I tell my guys is that all right, you're used to cold porridge. You've only ever had cold porridge your entire life. Now, to you, that's just normal porridge because you have nothing to compare it to. And then right now, I'm going to have you do the exact opposite. You're super early, so I'm going to have you swing to where you're almost hitting the ball directly out in front of you uh, to where like, if you're a right-handed hitter, you're almost hitting it into the first base dugout. And then if you're a left-handed hitter, you're hitting it into the third base dugout. And having them go through that and then actually seeing the the gears grinding in their head of their first one they're going to be super uncomfortable super awkward they're probably still going to be too early because in their head they're thinking oh this is what late is but it's actually more on time so they hit it up the middle it's like no 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 i need you going the opposite way then once they get that it's like all right now you've had hot porridge okay now still not great but now you've understand how cold the porridge you were having is. Now let's find the happy medium. Let's find that perfect room temperature that's just A1 porridge. And so when they go through and kind of being able to connect it to a, a story of like the Goldilocks and Three Bears, um, it allows them to kind of understand that process, that, that kind of timeline of what um, – they're trying to go through is and allowing them to understand like, Hey, 
yes, you might feel late on that swing, but that swing, you're actually more on time. And we just got to get you used to that. And again, that's where I, I call it the calibration phase, them calibrating, all right, what my actual timing needs to be versus what it is right now. And not only am I going to give you the hot porridge, like I want you to live in hot porridge oh, yeah. all the time until it becomes like a normal thing. And then we'll go find the middle uh, because like trying to get like make micro adjustments from one end back to the middle without ever experiencing the opposite extreme, which it is it's so much harder, uh, which is why I've really latched on over the last year or so of like the idea of the good miss. If we're working on catching it deeper and we're working on being later, like a good miss for you is a fastball that just jams the hell out of you. It just gets so deep that you can't get the barrel there and your hands just blow up off the bat. Like that is a good miss. Is it a positive outcome? No, but that's what we're working on. If you're going to miss, I want you to miss in the opposite extreme of what we're working on so we can work back to the middle from there. And I, I, I use in a... Visual example, and let's see if this thing can calibrate to it. Um, what I'll show my guys is that the sooner you're willing to jump into that extreme phase, the quicker we're going to find what middle is. And so if you're an athlete and you're just solely used to, right, uh, actually I'll get a Sharpie. I have lots of Sharpies right here, all varying <laughs> colors. Um there we go. So if I take this, and this is where I start, right here. That's my starting block. No matter what, anything past this starting block is going to feel awkward. No matter what. Even if it's yeah. correct, because I'm not used to it, it's going to feel awkward. So generally what I've seen is athletes, if I don't tell them to go extreme, what they'll do is they'll start there, then they'll go there, and then they'll go there, and then they'll go there. And they don't know what the middle is because they've never experienced the other far end. And so here, it's going to take one, two, three, four, maybe five swings to truly understand what middle is. But we don't know that that's middle because that's the furthest one we've done. So now we're also then going to have to go there and then there, and then there. Now it's taking us one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine swings. And now we're probably going to have to start working back towards the middle to find. Now we're now we've taken close to 10, 15 swings. And now it's like, oh, that's what the middle is. Versus if we start here, if we jump all the way to this far end. Now it's taken us three swings to find that middle. And it's one of those to where we've talked about in the past. If you're in high school, you are on a timer. You got four years to figure it out. And so if that takes, let's say, let, let's expand that. And let's say it's not just 15 swings. Let's say that's one month of training that it takes us. Three months of training to find middle because you're working extreme or 15 months worth of training because you're only making super small, little tiny adjustments and you never know until you get all the way to the end. That, that's a, almost a year and a half worth of training versus three months 
just because you're going through and we're taking small steps or we're taking extreme steps. And I think that's where it also comes into um, the athlete, or I apologize, the instructor being able to talk to the athlete and having them buy in. Because if I'm an athlete and I suck for three months, I'm not going to be a happy camper. But if I'm able to say, hey, it's three months versus 15 months. Oh, I'm taking three months every day of the week. Every day of the week. And if, I, if I'm not able to buy in as the hitter, if I'm not able to understand why it's important, like you said, to have good misses. And I like how you say good misses because if we don't explain that, to them, a miss is a miss, and any miss is bad. And until we are able to change or, or alter that idea of what failure is as the instructor, we're going to have an athlete that's always going to be trying to continue to do what they've done because that's what's comfortable. And as an athlete, you don't want to be in a challenging space while also being uncomfortable. You're going to go to whatever makes you as comfortable as possible. And that's going to be the continuous of you not being willing to do the extremes. And again, I think that comes down to the instructor being able to kind of translate not just the data and numbers, but the purpose and the plan uh, of what the uh, uh, training is going to be focused on. Yeah, yeah, 100%. That's, I mean, that's fire. Yeah, 100%, which kind of kind of lends into a, a, a podcast we've done before of like, how do you get the athlete to buy in? How do you make sure that they don't, you know, lose the confidence in themselves when they're going through that struggle period, that calibration period, you need a little mental training. You need to be able to do that as trainers for sure. It's tough to watch the kids struggle. Um, especially one that trains with you, but understanding that, uh, quote from, uh, back Batman, Dark Knight Rises, it's always darkest before it becomes light. It's always, Absolutely. you feel like you're, you're always at the bottom Absolutely. until you can start working your way back up. And when you're at the bottom, it sucks. It's lonely. It's dark. But if yeah. you have someone with you, it's like a, an instructor. When you work. Yeah. That's two days. Oh, you're cutting out heavy, buddy. Oh, buddy, pal. There we go. Now you're back. <laughs> All right. There's another one, 117. Uh, kind of. Oh. Oh. Hold on. Hold on. Let me close. Let me close some real quick. Let me get rid of some things. My CPU run a little yeah. bit more efficiently. Running that fucking 90%. All right. I think that's better. Uh, oh, nope. All right. um, anything? Oh. Keep chatting. Better? Keep talking dirty to me. I hope you're still. Ta- I hope you're not talking anymore. Talking. Were you talking? Ta- I'm still talking. Oh God. <laughs> what? This is wild, bro. We've never had an issue. I'm. I'll close some of my shit out too. 
Okay, hold on. Is that better? Yeah, I hear you solid at the moment. Chat one more time for me. Yeah, hold on. You hear me? Oh, yeah. No, we're, we're back. We're back. Okay. Sorry to cut you off. Okay. No, 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 you're good. Uh, yeah, that's, that's fire. That's, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, just like the, the podcast we did on mental training where it's like, can you as a trainer keep the athlete confident enough, focused enough, like have a high enough self-efficacy that they believe they can overcome this calibration period uh, is just vital. Did you stop after saying it's vital? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Right, let's let's wrap this up before our computers die. <laughs> Bro, because your image froze. And I was like, oh God. Oh no. <laughs> All right. Three, two, one. No, that, that's awesome stuff, man. I think this was a, a really good podcast. Um, really looking forward to our future podcast. We do have a little slight change in the formatting of how we're going to look to do some stuff. Going to move more into a, a little bit of a segmented podcast where we're going to have um, myself uh, doing something that we're going to call uh, the swing and miss segment uh, where I'm just looking to talk about stuff that I saw, whether it's on Twitter, Facebook, in the facility, uh, and just as a swing and miss where it's like, ah, I don't know about that one. Um, JP, what is going to be your segment, sir? We are going to dive into some of my tweets and talk a little bit more in depth about some biomechanics. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about some data collection processes. We're going to talk about some data visualization. We're going to get into the stuff that I love talking about and Twitter doesn't give me enough characters to talk about. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, and then we're always going to be still doing uh, a little chit chat, uh, JP and I going back and forth uh, about whatever the topic that we kind of want to discuss for that week. And so I'm going to try and get you guys uh, a little variance, a little bit more consistency with what we're talking about. Um, I know a lot of people are really looking forward to having JP talk a little bit more in depth on his threads. Um, if you guys haven't seen any of JP's threads yet, JP, where can people find those threads? You can find me at jpfasone one on Twitter, uh, and I'll be continually pushing those out. Speaking of Twitter, follow John Soderopoulos. Uh, my man is going through 30 days of biomechanics, and he is going deep, uh, spending like two hours a day, uh, every day for 30 days, just researching and, and getting in the trenches. So really good stuff coming from him. Oh, man, he always has great stuff. And is there anywhere where people can find you on Instagram? Instagram is jp.fasone, I believe. Uh, not super active on Instagram, but there's some really good stories. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. A little, little behind-the-scenes stuff uh, of guys making uh, skeletons uh, and everything like that over uh, in Washington. And so for me, you guys can find me uh, fast underscore RBI for everything. That's going to be... Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, anything uh, that you can find, fast underscore RBI. Um, thank you, JP, for joining us. 
Um, really excited to see how we're able to kind of put the future podcast together with our new segments. Uh, and to everyone listening, thank you for your time. Really looking forward to having you guys stick around with us for those future segments. And uh, until then, you guys have a great rest of your day. Boom, baby.